pivoty points, the common threads, as I call them, that connect all of these elements into something cohesive are what defines a restaurant and give you that feeling in your gut. It's intangible. But when these pieces come together, the reaction is powerful. So we're not in a restaurant business. We're not in a food business. We don't market. We create reactions. We achieve it through marketing. We don't serve people. We create reactions. We achieve it through service. I don't do promotions. I create reactions. I achieve it through promotions. I don't play music. I play reactions. I achieve it through music. That's the business we're in. And make no mistake. This is a great close, Roger. Ready? Make no mistake. He or she who creates the best reactions. Thanks for being with me back on the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Wow. What an episode we have today. John Taffer needs no introduction. What a dynamic personality. We all know him from the Bar Rescue television series. Amazing to believe that they're recording a new season coming up after so many seasons. I've been watching. It's exciting. It's turnaround. It's true reality in the restaurant and bar business. But I was so surprised to learn of John's background managing nightclubs on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, managing country clubs and resorts that I went to as a child in the Catskills in New York. We had so much in common that all came out in this episode, but we're going to talk all about the ins and outs of running dynamic operations. And John's experience is so extensive. So you're not going to want to miss this episode. Stay tuned. Thanks to the sponsors of this week's episode. Thank you so much for our audience as always. Now on with the episode. You're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Guys, I've always believed in systems to run a really effective restaurant. They say you have a system if you can walk away and leave your place for a day, a week, or a month. And it's just as successful, just as profitable when you return, if not more so. Now, the staff are really the foundation of this. And it all comes down to the word empowerment. You know, if you've got really great people and if you can develop those people to have your back and to run it as if they owned it, treat everything as if they had to pay for it, that's a super powerful system. Once you have the staff in place, it really comes down to three things. It comes down to, one, staff training. Development, recognition, and rewards to create what I call your dream team. How to empower your team to think and act like owners and to treat everything as if they owned it and had to pay for it. And to deliver amazing guest service experiences to your customers. To serve and sell because sales are the lifeblood of your business. Not allowing order takers on the floor, but teaching everyone to recognize opportunities and make suggestions that we know the customers will enjoy and appreciate. It all comes down to training, training, training. Number two, cost controls and maximizing profit. You need to know your critical financial numbers on a weekly basis, and it only takes 10 minutes, but you need to understand these things. How about your daily break-even? How much it costs you to open the doors to your restaurant each day? Inventory is not just walking around and figuring out what your order is that week. It's knowing the true value of your goods on hand at any given point in time. And you need this information to be able to calculate your true food and beverage costs. Your labor costs are also important. And running a weekly labor analysis against sales. If you know these things, I can teach you how to maximize your profit and control your costs. And then number three is what I call marketing firepower and affinity. You know, affinity is defined as a really powerful sense of loyalty and belonging where your customers become raving fans and they're like an army of brand ambassadors spreading the word for your restaurant. Well, all of this is included in the Restaurant Rockstars Academy. If you really want to take your restaurant to the next level, post-pandemic, things are heating up, customers are coming back, Now's the time to really maximize your opportunities, maximize your sales and profits, and create that dream team staff. Check it out at restaurantrockstars.com. It's the Restaurant Rockstars Academy. Rockstars, there are many elements to consider when growing your restaurant. Are you connecting with diners enough and with the right message? Could your kitchen be putting out more orders than your dining areas have room for? Well, it can be overwhelming, especially when the reason you got into this business is for the food and the people. That's why restaurants get Pop Menu. Pop Menu is the marketing tech platform designed to make growing your restaurant easy. 
so you don't have to grow it alone. With Pop Menu, you can capture more guests and their preferences through your restaurant's website that's designed to easily collect contact information and data so you can see what your guests love and why they dine with you. Connect and build authentic relationships with guests by using modern technology that personalizes marketing. Make all your systems work better together, improve margins, and conquer the chaos of your restaurant's digital presence. Pop Menu has a special offer for my listeners. For a limited time, get $100 off your first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com rockstars. Go now to get $100 off your first month at popmenu.com rockstars. Hey, John, how are you today? Welcome to the show. Good to be here, Rush. Well, you are certainly a personality and a celebrity in this hospitality business, and I can't wait to dive in. But I always start with the backstory of my guest in hospitality and when you first got involved in restaurants and bars. And you can take us back as far as you'd like, but tell us your whole story. We're also interested in your career trajectory to how you got from there to here. So start wherever you like. Sure. You know, I, I went to college at University of Denver. Uh, and took political science and anthropology classes. And uh, while I was in college, I started attending bar. And uh, I, I fell in love with the, the environment of the, the energy, the people, the friends that we made, the going out to breakfast after shifts, the whole thing, it, it, it became very important to me. Then I was a musician at the time. I uh, uh, <clears throat> wound up in Los Angeles and I was working in Los Angeles. And I was trying to make it as a musician, believe it or not. And uh, uh, through a friend, I was offered a job at the Troubadour, which is a very, very famous venue. I think the Doors uh, used to play there back in the day. They did. Lenny Bruce was arrested in 1963 for saying "mother blank." I will, I will say. Yes, yes. But uh, uh, and rich, rich, very rich history. Elton John was found for sure. There right. The Ron settled, yep. and I took a job there. And in a short period of time, I developed a nice relationship with the owner. One day, he threw the keys at me and says, ah, "You can have it." And I was manager of the Troubadour. Okay. And uh, from manager of the Troubadour, I was there for quite a while. Then I went uh, uh, from the Troubadour, I was I was uh, uh, moved to the East Coast. And through a headhunter, I was given a position in Florida for a company then called Beefsteak Charlie's. As a I remember state it. Manager, yep, as a state manager in Florida, we had the 71-item salad bar, which was a bitch. I mean, to put out yeah. that huge salad bar and, and, and in addition to seafoods and everything else we saw. Yeah, the all-you-can-eat shrimp, I remember, right? That's right. You remember Throwing well, the peels Roger. on the floor. That takes right. me back to college, John. So keep going. This is fascinating. Yep. yep. And by the way, college kids during spring break, forget about it. You guys would bury us at shrimp consumption. Anyway. Oh, yeah. So, so from there, uh, I did well. And uh, I was approached by a headhunter who asked me to uh, interview at a property in upstate New York called Grossinger's which was then one of the largest resort properties in the world, a, a very famous 1,200-acre, three nine-hole golf courses, our own ski mountain with lifts, the first snowmaking equipment ever in America, uh, um, a lake, of course, and about, at the time, 1,700 rooms, and about a million a month in food and beverage. This is uh, <laughs> around 1976. I remember this well, John. My family, believe it or not, when I was younger growing up, we'd always go to the Catskills and we went to yeah. a competing resort called the Concord. Of course. And that You're was a famous hotel. And, yeah. And all these places had the live entertainment with the, yeah. you know, the Hollywood stars and the Las yeah. Vegas acts and all that kind of stuff. And the food was over the top and the golf yep. courses and all this you mentioned. And this is my childhood. Uh, we yeah. did go to Grossinger's once. So I remember that. And I believe they even had a branded rye bread that you used to buy in the supermarket. We did a Grossinger's rye. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, but, you know, it was these were huge properties. They were American plan hotels, Roger, right? So yes. everything was, there were no cash registers anywhere oh, in the I property. Right. Everything was I Parents loved it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we had daytime activities, nighttime activities. So running Grossinger's as a food and beverage director, I had the golf club, the food and beverage related facilities connected to the golf courses and golf clubs. I had the convention center, all the food and beverage connected to the convention center from setting up events to the food and beverage and the planning and, and all the uh, 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 operations of convention activities. Then I had the restaurants. Then I had room service. So it was uh, quite Huge a responsibility gig. for a young guy. I was in my late 20s at the time. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Boy, I learned a lot there, Roger. And and from there, I was recruited from by another headhunter after I was there for a few years. And, and uh <clears throat> 
I went to work for a company that created Pulsations Nightclub out of Philadelphia, which we believe is the greatest nightclub in the world. Spaceship flew into the room, deposited a $400,000 robot on the dance floor. And people can Google. There are pages on Pulsations online and such. World famous. And so we opened Pulsations. Uh, I will never forget, Roger, in 1981, when I opened Pulsations, we did, 83, forgive me, we did $647,000 our first week open. Unbelievable. Which was, which yeah. was real money back, back then. Back then. Oh, my God. Real yeah. money. Like, even in right. today's money, you talk about a venue hitting that, and we're talking about, yeah, some larger venues today. But in those, yeah, in today's money, that is absolutely huge. And back then, this is yeah. fascinating. Keep going. This is great. And, and uh, at Pulsations, I was approached by a, another headhunter. I was a lot of articles about me at Pulsations, and there were some yeah. articles about me at Grossinger. So I was developing a pretty good name for myself. Reputation, yeah. And I had a good back pocket of experience from nightclubs to, to resort properties to, to huge mega nightclubs. So I really had a nice portfolio of experience. And then I was retained by a hotel company out of Chicago at the time called PNS Management had 2,800, uh, 28, not 2,800, 28 hotels, Holiday Inn, Sheridan, Marriott, franchises like that. Mm-hmm. I came on as general manager of that property. And I realized something. I realized that there's nobody in our business that has expense problems, not one. All we ever have are revenue problems. You see, when revenues go up 30%, we have no expense problems. Suddenly the rent numbers work. Suddenly our marketing expense numbers work. Suddenly our gratis numbers work. Suddenly we're not fighting for payroll anymore with that 30% revenue increase. I learned at a very young age to focus on the dollars of revenue aggressively, master revenue, and that revenue would be the cure-all for any problem I had later in the industry. I really embraced that, Roger. So at the hotel they put me at, in about six months, I raised revenue by over 30% property-wide. They gave me a bigger hotel. I raised revenue again. They gave me a bigger hotel. I raised revenue again. They promoted me 11 times in five years. I left that company making three times the money (laughs) as an employee uh, 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 than when I started with it. I then started my own company. This was around 1986 started my own company based in Chicago to develop uh, profitable food and beverage operations. At the time, hotels were, food and beverage in hotels were traditionally more amenities at that point, not profit centers. And my mission in life was to teach a hotelier how to make money in food and beverage, not have it be a bleeding guest amenity. And uh, uh, so I started my own consulting company. My first client was the hotel company that I left to create my consulting company. So all very coordinated. And I started with a client base. And then since then, I've done pretty much every major hotel chain you could imagine. We've opened, developed, designed hotels from Hong Kong, Singapore, Bangkok, uh, all over the world for brands like Hyatt uh, uh, and Marriott over the years, even Ritz-Carlton over the years, and uh, had massive experience. And what was interesting in the hotel business is when we did consulting in the hotel industry, nobody called us to say, if, they, if it wasn't a new hotel, Roger, nobody called us to say, John, I'm doing great. Go in and look at the property. It always was, John, I'm doing terrible. Go in and look at the property. So I never walked into good situations. I always walked into bad situations. Next, never did a company ever say to me, John, you got all the money you want. So they always invariably said to me, John, I need you to go in and fix it. And by the way, John, we have no money. So you got to figure out a way to fix this for very, very little dollars. So we created a lot of fun things. For example, positive picketing was one of my favorite. We would go to a property like a Dunkin' Donuts, for example, who was a client of ours years ago. And we'd say, okay, we're going to picket in front of this restaurant for seven consecutive days. But the picket signs say, donuts too fresh. Coffee oh, too delicious. It. What a hook that Prices is. unfair to competition. Service too fast. Prices too good. Restrooms too clean. And we would pick yeah. it in front of the restaurant. Premise being the more visible we are, the more potential we have, mm-hmm. and, and the more opportunity we have to convert that into revenue. Did media premise, pick up on that, John? Uh, it, in like, markets, yes. Yeah, TV, in markets, sh- you know, TV stations. It's yep. like, this is something unusual. It's different. Yeah. But what but a if we did intercept studies before that, we'd see yeah. that maybe two out of 10 people knew the property was there after a program like that. Eight out of 10 knew the property was there. So that increased identifiability. Yeah. And we learned quickly in those years that first I get your eyes, then I get your body, then I get your wallet. I don't get your wallet until I get your eyes and your body. So let's start in the beginning and that's your eyes. So we always looked at that as the premise in a way we would approach the industry. 
And then uh, 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 from there, we, we just became a hugely successful consulting company working globally, mega projects, clients like uh, 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 the huge, I'm not allowed to mention names, but, okay, sure. but huge theme park companies developing evening entertainment destinations for them, huge multi-venue properties like Mall of America, uh, 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 doing tenant mix work, layout works, making sure that we don't have cross cannibalization of venues and concepts that we put in the same multiple use properties. We got very sophisticated in the understanding of multi-venue development and a demographic and psychographic placement of each one and gridding out uh, patterns and spends and making sure that we went to a property that we didn't cannibalize check, that we raised check, but we raised experience and all those kinds of things. And, and, uh, one day I'm going to get you up to today pretty quickly. One day I'm giving a speech in Las, in Las Vegas, which I'm sitting right now. I live here. And uh, somebody comes up to me and says, ah, you should be on TV. So I go back to my offices and I think about it. I say, okay, you know, Gordon Ramsay's got kitchen nightmares. He's like really successful. Okay. So I write something up called on the rocks. Good name. And it's a, it's a cross Great between name. Uh, kitchen nightmares and mission mm-hmm. impossible. Yeah. So they would drop me in a restaurant, Roger, and I would have files of mixologists and, and chefs, and I would pull out my team like the beginning of Mission Impossible, and then I would uh, help the restaurant. You bet. Yeah, now, awesome. I had been a consultant to Paramount years earlier for Bubba Gump Shrimp Company. So, so that license and, 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 you know, rolling that out, which is a story into itself, which was when Rusty Pelican went bankrupt, they converted to Bubba Gump and it, it saved their company. But in any event, we worked for Paramount then. So I had relationships. So I called my buddies at Paramount. I said, listen, I'm trying to work on this thing. Can you get me a meeting with some of the TV guys? I want to see if I should even waste my time on this or not. So courtesy meeting, they got me a meeting with the TV team at Paramount. I drive through the big gates, Roger. I'm in a movie studio. I go into the boardroom. All the TV guys are sitting there like this, and it's a courtesy. They're going to listen to what I say, and I said to them in the beginning, guys, just tell me if this is worth my time or if I'm crazy. So I tell them my idea, and they look at me, and I won't use the language they use, Roger, out of respect for our audience. (laughs) They looked at me, and they said, John, you will never freaking be on television. You're too old. You're not good looking enough. It'll never happen. So I leave a little bummed out, of course, get in the car, drive through the big Paramount gates. And I say to myself, you know, I'm going to make my own sizzle reel. Only I can say no to me. I produced a four minute sizzle reel in a friend's bar in Hermosa Beach. It was empty on Saturday afternoon, full on Sunday afternoon for football. I went there with it empty. I did my thing. Next day, I came back with it full. We created the sizzle reel. I sent it to four production companies I had absolutely no relationship with. Got four out of four offers. Not surprised. You are not someone that we believe takes no for an answer, no matter what the situation. And you <laughs> yeah, I have tenacity. spun that around too. Oh, absolutely. This is yeah. great. So I learned then that I wasn't going to go for the best offer. I wanted the best company. So I signed with a company called Three Ball, who then had the biggest loser, Rod. Do you remember that TV show? I do. So they were very successful reality producers. They were mm-hmm. class. I yep. said, okay, that's the kind of company I trust to do my show. I signed with them in less than a year. Bar Rescue premiered on television. That's now 13 years ago, 240 some odd episodes. And uh, I just signed to do a whole bunch more uh, over a long, a long period of time. So, so um, it's been a heck of a run. 138 million unique viewers will watch Bar Rescue this year. Well, it's so interesting. I mean, that's a fascinating story, but it's like reruns there's like a marathon of bar rescue right now every time i turn on the tv now i was watching it this morning you did a segment with someone called bamboo beach tiki bar and that was fascinating i'm sure you remember that one yeah yeah so oh yeah this is this is amazing so it's got legs and it keeps going and you're still recording new episodes we are i start again in october yeah but you know it's interesting roger when you look at the lives that we live in the industry when we think about failure as as successful restaurateurs we have no comprehension, the depth of failure that I've experienced in Bar Rescue. I'm it sure. was an eye-opening to me. I never comprehended yep. that this level of failure could even exist. I mean, people who blow their parents' retirement, mm-hmm. they're living in their parents' home at 50 years old, they're losing 20 grand a month, they're borrowing this to, to lose the money. And it, it's remarkable to me. And it, it shows how there's about 8% of our industry that that uh, uh, come into this industry with no experience whatsoever. I see it all the time. Improper intentions. 
right? Social purposes or, you know, just ego, or I've always wanted to do this. I know it's uh, like, uh, they perceive it as this glamorous business. And it's like, Oh, I love having dinner parties at my house. And we get all these recipes and people say our food is great and we should start a restaurant. Let's cash in our 401k and let's go for it. And it's like, people have dreams. They're yeah, sick they of their do. jobs. And it's like, okay, I can do, I think I can do that. But you know what? So many restaurants, and I'm sure you will agree, are running or trying to run restaurants, but they're not running a business. And those are two different things. And oh. we see it every day in, in your work on the show, but it's like, that's the reality. And it pains me so much to see business failure of any kind and how much is on the line and the devastation it causes. And, you know, all for the American dream. And some people make it. And it's this is one of the most challenging businesses on the planet. I've been in lots yeah. of businesses, but this is definitely one of the most challenging. And J.C. Penny once said, if you don't take care of the customers, you'll have no customers. If you don't take care of the business, you'll have no business. I love it. Yes. yes. And it, it, it's, it's so much the truth. Also, I think, you know, in restaurants, yeah. in, you know, in broad stroke sense, sometimes restaurateurs, all of us are guilty of this. We work in it every day. Thank but you. We don't work on it. On it. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, delineating that time and saying, OK, two days a month four hours a week, however you want to delineate that yeah. time, but identify the fact that growth comes from working on it, not in it typically, right? We're, we're I believe uh, we're one idea away from our next million, quarter of a million, 10 million, whatever it is based upon the size of the company. How do we find that idea when we're working in the business transactionally or production-wise every day of the week? We don't find those opportunities. So some of the greatest things uh, and opportunities come to me because I'm not working in it when I get there. All I have to do, Roger, is work on it. So that allows me to go in and affect magic in, in literally four days. And by the way, I'm only there four days and we do build it in 36 hours. And I do, uh, I've never been there before. I've never met the people. It's, the bar rescue process is fascinating if you'd like me to run you through it. Yeah, let me, I do. I absolutely want to touch on that. But let's talk on something that you triggered. I mean, running a business versus running a restaurant, working in it, not on it. And so many operators are guilty of this. And yes, there's plenty of successful larger restaurant groups that have their systems dialed, but we're talking a lot of mom and pop independent operators with one or two locations and they don't have the systems. They don't know what the systems are. They have no financial savvy. It's like they're shooting from the hip. They're tied to their business seven days a week. It's like they're missing their kids, soccer games and graduations. And it's, and they're trapped. They are trapped because the business is running them. And I know you agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. But I think the key here, John, um, and please, I want, I want to know your yeah. thoughts on this, but I hate the word manager or management because that does not imply expertise or competence. It's simply someone's got a title. Maybe they're on a power trip. Maybe they tell people what to do. That's delegation. But leadership is a huge departure from that and empowerment and recognizing talent in people and being able to nurture and develop that talent gives the owner an exit strategy so that they can come up with the big ideas because now the staff have their back and the staff are well-trained and the staff are delivering amazing dining and guest experiences. And they're running the place as if they owned it because they've been incentivized to do so. You know, that's yeah. my philosophy. That's how I ran my business. But on the show, reality show or not, there is a lot of reality behind what you present. And we see a whole lot of failure happening before you step in and kind of give them a slap upside the head and show them the reality, what the yeah. reality really is. You know, you know, it's interesting. You, you train and teach people like I do, Roger, understanding the premise of food costs, 30% of every dollar you receive is mm -hmm. pretty simple. Yeah. Sure. Understanding that you have to count your inventory and make sure none of that disappears. So you achieve that 30%, not very, not rocket science by all means. A lot of them aren't doing it. They think inventory but is figuring out what the order is. But that's my point is yep. it's simplistic. If you look at it in it a is. compartmentalized yep. way, track, tracking my inventory, piece of cake, it's right? Foundational element. Understanding my theoretical, there's software programs. And, and look, my Taffer's Tavern, we don't even have a, a traditional stove in Taffer's Tavern. It's all sous vide. Everything is done. And so we run 60% less labor costs than a traditional restaurant by design. So there are systems and, and machines and mm -hmm. push buttons and all sorts of things today to make an operator more consistent and more efficient uh uh you know i went to nra this year of course i was there as well and i just yeah. missed you i guess i was there saturday sunday and ah. you were coming in monday i think and i wanted yep. to see you face to face but i flew out sunday night but wow gotcha. every year you go it is such an eye-opening experience and and now so much of the show is devoted to technology that's yeah. literally replacing labor that's what i was going to say because of the labor crisis so tell this, us your take on that so about five years ago there were five robotic booths 
This year, there were almost 200 robotics booths. Unreal, isn't it? Yeah. And you know, you think our, we're an industry. We're an industry that produces product in real time. I don't resell t-shirts. I don't resell men's suits or shoes. I produce my product in real time. So I must have the production facilities to do that. Yes. I can't get the people that I need today. And this has been a challenge for a long time. It isn't just current. You know, working with the NRA, we struggled with human resource and finding employees for 25 years. Sometimes it's worse than others, but it's always been an issue for the National Restaurant Association. I wasn't aware of that. Yep, for 25-year history, uh, uh, they will tell you that we've always fought to, to fully staff our industry. So, you know, during the Trump administration, employment was very low. It got a little tougher. Now employment is very low. It's, it's tougher. Mm-hmm. So we think to ourselves, okay, I need to find people. A, I can't find the people in quantity that I need. Next, the people that I find are often new Americans. They might not have English as their first language. True. Not as easy to train as somebody who has English as their first language. So I not only have a quantitative problem, I have a challenge in training and communications and all those types of issues. So the solution is technology, right? That's where we're going. Technology is consistent. It does it the same every darn time. You can man- manage quality in, in incredible ways, you know. Through sous vide, which is a Michelin five-star chef approach to cooking, you know, we've been able to provide consistency and quality that we think is really, really unique uh, uh, by eliminating the human factor and relying. So I think this is where our industry is going. I don't think there's any way to stop it. And based on the trends, uh, uh, our human resource problems are going to continue. So this is our only alternative in my, in my view. Let me introduce you to GoTab. GoTab is a restaurant commerce platform with a suite of solutions, including POS, online ordering, mobile pay, and even a kitchen management tool. Now, you know I'm all about maximizing sales, but did you know that operators using the GoTab platform see 35 to 50% higher check averages and 20% higher tips? Now, that can be a real game changer for your bottom line. The GoTab platform empowers you, the operator, to run a leaner and more profitable operation. Listen to what GoTab customers have to say. Kent says with real-time analytics, we can manage our plate cost. When we switched to GoTab, we were able to lower labor costs and increase wages. Ian shares that our chefs and managers love to use GoTab. The back end is well thought out, intuitive, and easy to use. While Keem adds that the GoTab team is always available for us and extremely responsive. GoTab's flexible, easy-to-use solutions will simplify your operations, putting you in control of your restaurant's success. Visit GoTab.com rockstars today to sign up for a free demo and get qualified to receive a complimentary meal. Again, that's GoTab.com rockstars. Hey there, Rockstars. Let's talk birthday marketing. It's one of those critical, important details that either drive new and repeat business into your place or not. Now, very few of us are real expert marketers, but why not a program that's done for you that targets all the customers in your area that are having birthdays? Everyone has a birthday. Why not speak to my buddy Dyson Barnett? He's a former restaurant owner operator. He knows this business and now his company delivers birthday customers and it's all done for you. Pick up the phone, contact my buddy Dyson, check out the link in this episode and why not Get some marketing that you can track where you know exactly if it's working or not and what the return on investment is because so few marketing dollars that restaurant owners spend is trackable. So that's key. Dyson is pretty certain that he can get more butts in seats and not only more butts in seats, but repeat business. Once he introduces new customers to your restaurant, those people, if they have a great experience in your place, are going to come back and tell their friends. Now that's trackable and that's powerful marketing. Check it out at jointhebirthdayclub.com slash birthday rockstar. I see it on the cooking side, John, as being a huge benefit, but I guess what most concerns me is if you've got a true passion for hospitality, you never want to lose the guest interaction and touching each guest in a personal way. And you certainly don't want to replace people with technology if it interferes with that magic that happens. Part of the reason why people go out to eat is they feel like this is my place. It's like I'm a regular, I'm a local. And if you're doing your job right, you're treating every new customer walking in the door as if they're an old friend, you know, and you can't replace that magic that happens, whether you've got a food truck over the counter or you've got a full service sit down place. 
And, you know, I'd hate to see a world where I go into a restaurant and a robot serves me and a robot takes my order. And, you know, we're seeing um, online ordering has become a huge thing due to the pandemic. And you've got self-serve kiosks and you've got digital menu boards. And it's like all these things are designed for a reason, clearly. But some of that overlaps into losing that personal touch. And I think that's I couldn't sad. agree with you more. So I, I put a lot of technology in the back of the house, none in the front of the house. Great. Okay, I don't have works. tablets on the tables. I, I, I don't even like digital menus. I like to hand you a paper menu. Uh, I like the interactivity. You know, if you look at the science of menu engineering, you're going to order very different items when you're looking at a home menu than when you're looking at a section of a menu Agreed. on the screen. Right. I can't move your eyes. I can't box. I can't shadow. I can't draw attention. I can't manage my sales mix. I can't do any of those things with digital menus. So I'm with you. Roger, I, I couldn't have said it better. I'm all about human connectivity, looking in people eyes. Brands are what we do, not what we portray. We can portray through technology, but we can never connect through technology like humanity can. So I agree with you. I hope we don't lose that. I see too much of it happening now. And it's an easy route for some companies to take, but I think brand equity disappears when they start to put a, a technology in the front of the house in that regard. Thank you for yeah, thank you for that opinion. I, I totally agree with you there. Yeah. You know, we started to briefly touch on on food costs and on inventory and those critical financial controls. What are you seeing in terms of menus? Because some people, when they talk menu design, we're talking about, oh, well, your eye naturally gravitates to the top of the right of the menu first, and then it goes to the left bottom corner. Yep, yep. And all that placement has a certain place to it. But in my book, it's like I eliminated all that because I do believe it's it's absolutely possible and smart to design a menu where the profit spread in each category is pennies and not dollars. And I work with so many clients that have no idea what their profitability on each item is. They're not costing out their menu. They're not keeping up with inflation. They're selling things that are losing them money. And in all likelihood, the most popular items are also the least profitable to sell. And I've worked out this template, you know, where I can, I can plug in all the information. If they can give me recent cost sheets, I've got a template that ranks everything in terms of profits from highest profit item to least profit in each category. And then from a simple product mix or a sales report from a POS, you plug in volume of sales over a date range. Hopefully it's six months to a year or even more. And then you press the go button. It shows you you're leaving hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table and lost potential profit because your most popular items that are taking sales away from the highest profit of items are, and there's, you know, there, what an eye opener that is, you know, and do you see yeah. any of that? Do you see people? Well, we do. That design I actually wrote a book 34 properly. years ago on menu yeah. engineering no and kidding. it had a lot of the principles you just said, but you know, I, would say, I would say these things, you know, absolutely. So we were one of the first companies in the world uh, uh, to do laser tracking and eye movement uh, and understand where the eye lands on a one panel, two panel, three panel menu, uh, uh, the impact of certain adjectives, certain words, the impact of a flag, a chef special, uh, for example, uh, people have a 5.6% propensity to order the bottom two items of a list than the top one item on the list. People uh, uh, shadowing something can increase sales of that item by 13 to 17% every freaking time. But you don't shadow the whole menu. You shadow one item in each category. Yeah, Boxing something mm -hmm. will increase sales of that item 20%, absolutely 100% of the time. So if I know what I can pop 20%, I know what I can pop 14 to 17%, and I know what I can pop by 5 to 6%, the next thing to understand is we don't put percentage points in banks. We put dollars in banks. Correct. So, many make so I mistake. take a look at profit con contribution on a dollar standpoint. Mm -hmm. And that's how I identify my highest profit contributors in that format. Obviously, the highest dollar profit contributor, that sucker's getting boxed. My second highest dollar profit contributor, that sucker's getting shadowed. My third, fourth, and fifth are going to be the bottom on the lists in each category. So by doing that, and I can tell you because we've worked with huge chains over the years, even Pizza Hut in Dubai, in another part of the world, the exact same principles in Jerusalem, the same principles held true in Bangkok, the same principles held true with regard to, to movement and boxing and shadowing. We would raise menu profitability by 12 to 18% every single time. The next thing we would do is we would attack psychological pricing. Anything on a menu that's not priced at 95 cents. I think that the, you know, chefs getting away. Oh, I want to round it to a dollar. Look, you know, uh, Taking a burger and dropping in it at 8.45 is lunacy. 
There's no psychological difference in pricing if you bring that item to $8.95. So price your things at 95 cents when it's time to, because of food costs, like right now we're getting pushed. It's, it's, am I going to go from $8.95 to $9.25? No, I'm going to $9.95. I'm not stopping in the middle. It's leaving money on the table. So understanding psychological uh, 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 profit and positioning, understanding the engineering of a menu completely, understanding your profit contributions and dollars. These are the things that will drive another, you know, 25 to 30 percent. And if I can add one more thing, please. When we looked at revenue generation, we always said to ourselves, okay, we got three things. We got new customer programs. We got frequency programs. We got spend. That's all we got. So how do we target all three of these things all the time? And, And then I bought the Neighborhood Marketing Institute. Uh, from Tom Feltenstein. And we got into the premise of neighborhood marketing. And we started realizing that, wow, if I do radio spots or TV spots or billboards or any traditional advertising means, and uh, I'm shocked saying this to you as a TV guy, Raj, but I got to spend all this money and hope that they come. What if I said no? So I'm opening a rest- I'm opening my restaurant in, in, in Arlington Ballpark in Dallas. And I say to myself, okay, I'm going to give away 200 rib dinners. And my research shows that if an individual comes to a restaurant for the first time and has a fantastic experience, the statistical likelihood of them returning for a second visit is about 30%. If they come to that restaurant for a second visit and have a second flawless experience, the likelihood of a third visit is about 42%. But if they come, and this is uh, tens of thousands of guests tracking to tell you this data. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If they come for a third time, the likelihood of a fourth visit is 72%. So don't market to one visit, don't market to two visits, market to three visits. So I'll give away a free rib dinner. You get a postcard from me, right? says, come to John's restaurant, get a free rib dinner. You look, there's no restrictions. Doesn't say you gotta be with somebody buying dinner. Doesn't say you can't come Friday night. None of that stuff. Not gonna tour timeshare. Right. So you come in, you drop your card on the table, you get a whole rib dinner, corn on a cob, ribs, everything. If you want a glass of water, you're not going to get a check. But when you come into the restaurant, my hostess is going to ask you, have you been here before? Mm -hmm. You say no. When she seats you, she's going to put a red cocktail napkin in front of you. Everybody else has white cocktail napkins. You got a red cocktail napkin. Every person in that restaurant now, now is your first time customer. You'll come in, you'll order your rib dinner. The manager will come over in the later part of the meal and say, how was your rib dinner? He says, oh, it was fantastic. I loved it. Awesome. You got to try the chicken. I pull out my business card. I write on the back, $5 off chicken. I sign it. Come back. My name's John. I'm the manager. Come back and have the chicken. I just primed visit two, all because of the red napkin. Now you come back for visit two. You drop my business card on. Oh, John, the manager sent me in for chicken. Blah, blah, blah. I order the barbecue chicken. I get $5 off. At the end of the meal, I come back to that table because they tell me, you got a card on table 44. Come back. How is that? Oh, delicious. You full. Oh, I'm stuffed. Next time, you got to try my cheesecake. Give you the card piece of cheesecake. Now, <laughs> the rib dinner cost me $4.65. The $5 off chicken I broke even on. I don't even see that as a cost. Mm-hmm. The Marketing. cheesecake cost me about a dollar forty. So when I put it all together, my cost is six dollars per guest, but I only pay when you come. I don't spend a dime you if you come don't back. come. Absolutely. I packed restaurants that way. I've also nice. learned that people get addicted to discounts. They never get addicted yeah. to free. No, so, clearly. You so devalue that's the way we something when you discount. Yeah, that's the way we market. And then oh, what we do great. is we task management to increase guest counts by 1% a week for 10 mm-hmm. consecutive weeks, twice a year, in concerted programs. So if you have a 1,000 guests a week, you only have to increase it by 2% a week. That's only 20 guests. So go ahead, put a program together, call your mother if you have to, but you're giving me my 20 guests this week, and you're giving me my 20 guests next week. I want 1% for 10 consecutive weeks. The same time... We work on check and we build check by 10 to 20%. Uh, so these, these are the ways we surgically attack revenues and, and, and profitability. And you're right, Roger, it's the difference between running a decent business and going to the promised land. You know, that was, that was brilliant marketing. I want to throw something at you that I did for years until I didn't need to do it again. But whenever I opened a new restaurant, 
I always had cash cows, you know, that that cost me virtually nothing to give away. They were super profitable on the menu because the value was there. Clearly the perceived value, it was a nice presentation, the sights, the sounds, the smells, all that kind of stuff. I printed up these four color business cards and I went around to non-competing businesses in like a five mile radius, like retail stores and a movie theater and bed and breakfast inns, introduced myself to the owner and manager and said, Hey, I'm opening a new restaurant. I'd really like to give your guests a free whatever it was, the cash cow, just to give, you know, to introduce them to my place. And here's the kicker. If you send me that business, if you stamp the back of that business card with your identification, I'll give you 10% in back before tax in trade at the restaurant. Some of these businesses sent me 10 and $15,000 in new business over the course of months. But then I wanted to get them back again. You talked about touching every guest in a personal way, the red napkin, everybody gave them first class treatment. I wanted to get you back. So we, we, delivered a good experience clearly, but then lottery fever, right? When was the last time you were at a convenience store or a supermarket when someone in front of you wasn't buying a lottery ticket, right? There was billion dollar lotteries not so recent ago. I came up with this idea of branding a lottery ticket that looked like a lottery ticket and it was a scratch off, but it had our logo on it and our name and all that kind of stuff. And we put that in the check presenter uh, after that first visit from that guest, and we said, hey, you know, we hope you win something. Well, every ticket was a winner, and they'd immediately pull out the quarter and scratch it off as they were after they paid the check, and it brought them back in again. And they would win another cash cow, which cost me virtually nothing. The check average for a two-top was about 75 or 80 bucks back then. And I, and I thought, okay, after these two visits, I think I got you for life. And that filled my seats when I was opening a new place. And then we didn't need to do it again until we opened another restaurant. So similar ideas, but yeah. you got to think we out did, of the uh, box and be creative here. And, and you certainly did We did something did called the Express Lotto Launch. Let me I, would hear go the state, I would go to the state lottery. I'd buy real instant win lottery tickets. I'd buy dollar tickets for 80 cents because I was giving them away, not selling them. Mm-hmm. I would create a special lunch express menu, eight or 10 items delivered in 15 minutes with a lottery ticket. The 80 cent cost of the lottery ticket was engineered into the cost of the item. So it was completely sustainable. It wasn't a one-time deal. They would come into the restaurant, they would order their Lotto Lunch Express item, and they would scratch those tickets, and it would be, let's say, six secretaries from upstairs or four executives from upstairs. They're all scratching the tickets together. They're laughing. One guy wins $6. Oh, it becomes like a massive thing. It was one of the most successful programs I've ever had is by attaching to the lottery program for lunch. So, you know, things like that are very powerful. We also used to send envelopes out to our key mailing list and say, in this envelope is a coupon from 5 to $50 and anywhere in between. But only your hostess can open it in a restaurant. Oh, so yes. people would come in with the secret envelope. Yeah, the sealed envelope. And and they would come in. I got a secret envelope. Okay, so we'd sit you down. And when you sit down at the table, you'd open the envelope and you'd see what was in it. And they weren't all $5. We would have some fun with it. We would give away some 50s and such. But, you know, these programs are really powerful. I remember years ago, we worked with the Palms. And we wanted to give away a free lobster on people's birthdays. And they said, oh, we're the Palms. We can't do something like that. So we put together a really cool invitation. In the invitation was a pocket that a lobster bib went in. And it said on your birthday, please present this card, blah, 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 and have a free lobster for your birthday. Well, people don't come alone to have a lobster. They're never. coming with two or three. Absolutely. Yes, you never. bring your buddies with you. Always. You're going to have some wine. You're going to have some drinks. It's a birthday party. It was a hugely successful program. And that's giving away a high item like, like a lobster. So, yeah, you know, marketing is understanding that marketing must provide value to the guest. It doesn't mean absolute value. It could be perceived value. It could be experiential value. These things make a huge difference. So being creative in the way we position things like your lottery tickets or my uh, lunch lotto program or the red napkins programs, or, right. these are the things that build loyalty. And it's full circle. None of those things would happen, Roger, if technology was between us and our customers. But you It's know, almost it's, a full circle conversation. I it's totally the human agree. connection of those yeah. programs that makes them work. But it also goes back to what you said before about the working on your business. This is working on your business. If you're in the trenches seven days a week, like just trying to get the food out, it's like you're not thinking of these ideas that are going to drive exponential business and save your business and really, you know, give you an advantage over the competition. So that's why you need your staff to run the places if you, you know, owned it as if they owned it. So thank you for sharing. I mean, this was like a mini marketing lesson and I'm sure the audience is rapidly taking notes. I got to try that. It'll work in my place. So thanks for sharing. Those are great ideas. 
let's walk through bar rescue. Let's say you're walking into a new place and getting the lay of the land. Are you prepped in advance? I mean, what do you do first? Do you triage stuff? I mean, stuff is yeah. bombarding you the minute you see stuff because you've got a trained eye. I mean, your foundation and your experience is exemplary. I can't imagine all the things you've done and everything you've learned along the way. And you've shared a lot of that, but what happens when you walk through the door? What do yeah. you do first? What do you notice? Well, I'm there for four days. Uh, what I'm going to tell you is absolute truth on my mother's grave. Okay. There's no scripts. There's no actors. None of that. So here's what happens. I get, yeah. I show up at about 530 at night on the first day. They put me in a makeup chair. I have two producers that come in that have been there for a day shooting footage uh, before I got there. They give me a briefing. You know, the, the bar is owned by Roger and Corey. Roger and Corey are partners are ready to kill each other. Roger's already lost his house. Uh, uh, Corey's about to lose his house. Uh, uh, they have enough money to make it three more months, John. That's all I know. I don't want to know anymore. I like to learn at the same time the audience does. That's the success of Bar Rescue. I'm not ahead of you. <laughs> You're with me when I go through this. So now I'm going to go in for recon. I don't really know much of anything what's going to happen when I go in. I don't know who the people are. I don't see casting reels on purpose. I provide standards. You know, these are what I want. I want employees. I want a manager. I want a kitchen. I want to, mm -hmm. but I don't see casting reels. I don't know the names of the bars till I get there. I, I am really completely ignorant. So I walk in for recon, ignorant, except knowing the partners and the debts and the financial scenario. Your wife's ready to kill you. You know, you don't have money to send your kids to college. I mean, that's the kind of background stuff I get. I walk in, I see what I see. Uh, uh, um, I react, could be nicely, if I think you're a good person who's trying and failing because, you know, not due to attitude, et cetera. If you're a jerk who's, you know, screwing your wife and children because of your own laziness, I'm, I'm going to go at you that way. And I don't know what I see. So I go and I do recon at the end of recon, whatever happens when, when I walk out, uh, the cameras stop, we put all the ownership and employees in vans in the parking lot. And I go in and design the bar that night. So now it's about 11 o'clock at night. Cameras have stopped. I'm handed a demographic report that I've designed that gives me some demographics and psychographics of the market area. Yep. I'm given another document that gives me competitive information. So I understand there's five sports bars, there's 10 of this, there's 10 of that. So I can sort of match the concepts and the, and the market demographics. I then have to look at the space and come up with a design that, that moment. So I look at the horizontals, I look at the verticals, I look at the floor plan, I try to come up with a concept there. So we come up with an initial physical design. I have 57 in my crew. Eight of them are in my construction department. So they'll set up a tent. We can do mill work, all sorts of, of carpentry work in our tent. Awesome. So at the end of that night, my team has our general marching orders. We're going to build this. It's going to look that way. We're going to target this, this. This will be our key areas. This is what we're doing behind the bar. This is what we're doing out front. This is what. So we have a generalist. We go home. The next day on TV is day two. You see training and stress test. What you don't see is I'm finishing the design with my team off camera. Yeah. I got to find bar stools, wallpapers, flooring, ceilings, technology, lighting systems, sound systems, video systems. Right, right. Bar you stations. find all that locally or it's well, like here's you've got the resources clearly, but it's I have to get deliver. it all. I have to get it all within 24 yeah, hours. Yeah, just like that. Yep. So you'll see if you look carefully, Roger, you'll smile when I'll tell you this. Often the chairs and bar stools don't match because I can't get 60 of the same kind. I can get 10 of these, 20 of these, 30 of those, because it's all moving so quickly. Of course. So the design gets adapted in real yes. time to what I can truly get. Okay. So now I can't get this stool. So now that finish doesn't work. So I've got to change this finish to accommodate the stool I can get. So by the end of day two, at the end of stress test, the logos to the sign maker, the branding and logo is done. The recipes are done. The food orders are in the Cisco's. The drinks are done. The food orders are in. The beverage orders are in. The uniform orders are in. And my team goes in at about a midnight on stress test night and starts construction. We build a day, the day before we build some of the shelving and back bar things off site in our tent so we can carry a lot of that in rather than build it on site. That does give us a few hours head start. Day three. Now I train off site at another location. You notice because that's where, because we're building it. Day four, those same vans pull up at about four in the afternoon with the, with the employees and owners. They're blindfolded. Uh, the bar is finished. I show up at about the three o'clock on the fourth day. Yeah. I'll do a walkthrough with my team. I might not like something. I want to change this. I want to yeah. shift that. Let's do this. I want to try. Let's design this plate different. There's tweaking that we'll do that afternoon of day four. They come out blindfolded. I show them the bar, hang for an hour or two. Uh, we leave. My crew uh, uh, loads out. 
about eight hours, two days off, and then we do it again. This is unbelievable. Like you just covered a thousand details in a business of a thousand details, but let's talk about the people portion because a lot of the people we see on Can I TV, add one thing? Can I interrupt you? Because this is a really astute thing. All right. I come up with a concept, an interior design, a menu, recipes, plates, presentations, and train people in four days. That's unbelievable. What the hell takes our industry so long? I know, right? Why does it take us months to roll out menus? Why does it take us weeks of meetings and discussions to do training? I mean, time is money. If there's anything that I've learned from Bar Rescue, Roger, it's that whatever we do in our industry, we can still do it smart and do it a lot faster. Unbelievable. This is like such an eye-opener to hear what goes into this in less than a week and yeah. a total transformation in most cases, redesign, rebranding, um, everything. Well, clearly you've got now a design aesthetic, right? And and a key knack for looking at the demographics and figuring out a new concept that's going to work, creating a buzz around it. And then there's a line at the door all the time. But let's go back to the people piece, because in a lot of cases, the people are that bar's worst enemy and not yeah. everyone deserves to stay. And some people can be, you know, reset. I call it pushing the reset button. And then clearly, you know, they're on TV. Not everyone can be comfortable behind the camera and not flub mm -hmm. their lines and like be natural as if there's not a camera watching them. How does all that come together? Well, the cameras come in about a day and a half before I get there. So believe it or not, the cameras start to disappear. If I keep them busy enough and engaged, okay. my, yeah. my production crew does not interact with them at all. Only I mm -hmm. do. All right. So they never think they're working for production. They always think they're working for me. So I got to keep it real. I can't follow the cameras, Roger. The cameras have to follow me, if you know what I'm saying. I do. So my, we call it shadow production. My team is in the background. All the, the employees have is a relationship with me. So they react to me. I keep them focused. I keep them busy. The cameras disappear. You can tell because look at the fools people make of themselves. Obviously, if they were thinking the camera was there, they wouldn't have done it. So they're in the moment and those cameras disappear when you're in that moment. You know, the biggest problem that I have, and I'm sure you experience the same thing, is fixing businesses is easy. Fixing people is really, really hard. <clears throat> and you have to understand what is what is the blockage that's blocking this person from success. And you know, you look at people and, and is it the ego, you know, that, that, that they're too big to sweep their own floor? You know, they're too important to have to sit down in an office and do numbers right. or right. train employees? Or, or is it, you know, a, a pride, you know, that they're failing and they don't have the pride to change course or to challenge your own decisions? You know, is it fear? They've lost $400,000 of their parents' retirement, but if they close tomorrow, they failed. As long as they're open. They haven't yet failed. There's a glimmer of hope still. That's right. So, so the fear of failure causes them to stay open and lose more and more and more. So what are these things? And how do you crack through to these people? You see me embarrass them in front of their spouses. Yes. You see me embarrass Top them love, in front I of their children. I see a lot on, on your shows. Yep. But, you know, I find that people are in this shell and, and they're not going to step out of this shell of failure. I got to somehow make them doubt themselves enough about even one thing that that shell opens just a crack. And in that crack I can walk in, it begins with convincing them that they're wrong. You know, I wrote the book, Don't BS Yourself, Cut the Excuses That Are Holding You Back. After my 120th episode of Bar Rescue, you're going to love this story. I was in Detroit, Michigan. Please share. And the bar is failing and, and a woman is, is, owns this bar, a nice woman. And I look at her every episode. I always ask the owner, why are you failing? And it doesn't always make the final cut, but I always ask that question. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me and said, John, I'm failing because of the euro in Greece. What? And What? Exactly. I go back to my hotel room and I think to myself, 120 episodes. You know, Roger, not once did anybody say, John, I'm failing because of me. Not one time. 120 episodes, they always blame the competition, the weather, construction, the president, Congress, taxes, the economy, yes, recession, yes, yes. pandemic. Never did they blame themselves. Business of egos and pride, isn't it? Yes. And then I realized, okay, so she has an excuse, the euro in Greece. Yeah. So she's going to wake up in the morning and she's going to look in the mirror and she's going to blame the euro in Greece for her problems. But what if, what if she woke up that next morning? looked in the mirror and truly blamed herself, then she would change because she wouldn't like that. 
But as long as she blames the euro in Greece, she doesn't change. So I realized, son of a gun, Roger, I found a common denominator of failure. It's an excuse. You see, if we have an excuse, we didn't do something we should have. We did do something we shouldn't have. We fell short on something. We failed in some way. I come up with an excuse. I sleep like a freaking baby. And now, because I'm sleeping like a baby and I blame the excuse, I have no reason to change, no reason to grow, no reason to adapt. So excuses, I believe, are the common denominator of failure. They cause inaction. They paralyze us. They prevent growth. And and that experience uh, uh, had me write that New York Times bestseller, Don't BS Yourself, really, really powerful. So I say to people, whatever your situation is, it's on you. Look in the mirror own it, and then change something. You know, there's a certain amount of drama that goes with TV that gets ratings, and that's certainly a part of what you do. But there's also, you know, there's a compassionate side of John Taffer, and then there's a an aggressive side of John that goes in and really gets attention to people. And I've seen, we've seen, you know, liquor bottles smashed on the floor and yelling at people because there's mold in the ice machine and all that kind of stuff which makes for great TV, but it really scares the hell out of people, doesn't it? And it really is an eye-opener, like, oh, my God. And it's like, they'll follow you to the ends of the earth after that, won't they? Yeah, they do. You know what's amazing, Rogers? At the end of the episode, I get that hug. That's And there's only one episode that I didn't get a hug in. But you don't hear what they say to me because the microphones are on our chests. So when we hug, we cover the microphones. Yeah, it's muffled. Yeah, The things they say to me, Roger, are unbelievable. John, you saved my life. John, you saved my marriage. You know, I'm talking to my kids again. I have hope again. Thank you. Thank- and I find the ones that fought me the most, that I got the loudest with, yeah, right. give me the tightest hug. Wow. How gratifying is that for you? Because we talked earlier about how rampant failure is in our business and, and the odds of success and why people get into this for the wrong reasons. But somehow you give people that don't have a clue about what they're doing, not only do you give them hope, but you give them the tools to change the business and change their life and their approach to how they run things. It, yeah. That's that's really the beauty of this show. So when you walk what a away- blessing. Yeah. What a I mean, blessing I can't imagine- to be able to do that every week. Yeah. That's, so, that's unreal. Again, so I, I, I said to my wife way ago, and I've said this before, at the end of the show, two things happen. I get a hug and I get a check. A hug sort of means more than a check these days. Mm -hmm. It's very inspiring. So when you get that hug, you fight harder next time. You know, think of this, Roger. I show up in this guy's place. He's got enough money to make it two more weeks. He's in debt three, four hundred thousand dollars. He's broken, man. His wife has lost faith in him. His kids are just no, 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 no. His life is unraveling. He's losing everything. He's got enough money for two more weeks. I'm his last chance, Roger. Yeah, the life preserver, right? The Hail Mary. (laughs) If I don't do everything I can to fight for this guy, no matter if I got to throw a bottle to wake him up, I'm throwing that bottle. Whatever I have to do to help him, I have to do. And if I don't, how dare me? Unbelievable. So do your producers find the candidates of the bars that you serve or or do you have a part in that? I mean, how does, I mean, there must be lots of failing businesses out there that would love to be on Bar Rescue to be saved. I mean, how yeah. does that process work? Well, you can go to johntafford.com. There's a way to, to apply there. You can also apply at the Paramount site. But we have professional casting company that, that looks at all of these applications. They go around the country. They look at the bars. You know, we do look at financials. I'm not going to have somebody lie to me and say they're losing money to get a free remodel. Yeah, of course. Right? I want right, real right. stories of real yeah. people. Hardship. I want real stakes. Yeah, I want something on the line, Rod. You know, if, if, I want your house, your family on the line. I want, I want this to mean something to you. And uh, so other, you know, those companies take care of all that for me. I, I don't like, as I mentioned earlier, I don't like any connection to that part of it. That's what keeps it real for me. So everyone in this industry should know that the bar is a hugely profitable part of the business, but it's also a potential for loss and theft and unscrupulous practices and bartenders that can pull fast, fast ones all day. You know, I'll serve you a drink and I won't ring this in and I'll charge you and I'll stick the money. I mean, that's basic stuff, but there are so many things that I'm sure you've seen. Do you still see a lot of that in the, in the bars that you go in and, and is it possible to turn all that around? Do you have to fire people that you catch stealing or, you know, or you have an inclination that this is what's going on and you're losing all your profits to your people? Like, what do you see there? I, I know it when it's happening. I mean, I even can see the, the pennies and the matches moved around behind the bar when they're counting what they've stolen and what the register owes them and all of yeah, that. Yeah, of course. So I'm pretty quick to bust that, but attentiveness solves that problem. 
And uh, if these were attentive owners, I probably wouldn't be there in the first place, Roger. So in their case, almost every case, there is theft or significant leakage, if you will, of course, uh, uh, past what would be reasonable. That's the sad stuff is the employees will say, I love him. He's good to me. He's a great owner. He's like family to me. He's like a father to me. And then they go out and steal from the guy. Exactly. Yeah. What's in it for me? You know, and I'm not paid enough to care. And yeah, yep. I, I see yep. an opportunity. I'm going to take it. And that's my ticket forward. I know it. And substance abuse is rampant in our business too. Sad to say, but true. And, you know, we've all had those horror stories of, you know, people selling steaks out the back door to fuel cocaine habits. And it's like alcoholism runs rampant. And even amongst owners, it's like you're buying everybody a drink and you're having a drink at the bar and they're buying you drinks. And next thing you know, you're constantly in the, you know, and I, I tried really hard to separate myself from that. I was friendly to all my regulars, obviously, but I never accepted drinks and I never drank while I was working or working on I. my business, you might say, but yeah, I always felt that, that I had to be sober. God forbid would something happen. There needs to be somebody who's sober in this room who can take care. God, if somebody slips and falls, somebody has a heart attack, something happens. So I always looked at it as a serious responsibility. So I never drank at work. You know, I, I never associated with employees at a personal level. I'd be nice and all of that. Yeah. <laughs> Many years ago, I owned a bunch of steakhouses and I went to my unbelievable um, general manager's house yeah. for dinner. You've been, you've been and I opened this kitchen cabinet and the cabinet was decorated in early Alamo grill. In other words, all my China, my so just one of my best general managers. Mm -hmm. So now I see my stuff in his house. What am I going to do now? So I've learned I've never gone to an employee's house ever since then. Let's talk about efficiencies. Efficiency yeah. is so important to profitability and speed of service and all those kinds of things. Like how do you make things happen so that the flair is there? The showmanship is there, the quality of the drink, the presentation and all those things. And then you know, you got to move it out fast because the yeah. time clock is running and you got to make money. Yeah. Well, we're not one for doing too many shortcuts uh, uh, in presentation, but you know, we do sous vide cooking, which our longest ticket time in mm -hmm. Taffer's Tavern is about six minutes. So, so and that's for a steak. So, so we right. do very well with our sous vide. Our bartenders are all fresh ingredients. It's all handmade, but we have very, very high standards that, that we manage uh, in that regard. You know, we've learned that presentation is everything. And, you know, we're creating, I don't believe we're in a restaurant business, Roger. I believe we're in a business of reactions. I don't believe the cook in the kitchen is cooking an entree. He's cooking a reaction. He's achieving it through the entree. No restaurateur should think that his food or his beverage is in fact his product. It is not. The reaction is the product. The food and beverage is strictly the vehicle to the reaction. If the food hits the table mm -hmm. and I don't stand up and react to it, it failed. So I'll redesign that plate a hundred times until somebody sits up and reacts to it. I, how do you make somebody react to a bottle of Budweiser that every bar in America has? Yeah, so you know, that comes down to human dynamics. But I say this as, as a final point in this regard. Mm -hmm. When I owned the only patent ever issued for music management and hospitality properties, uh, when we were involved in Rainforest Cafe and such, we could increase table turn time by 20% through beats per minute design of music. I could make you chew faster. I could make you eat faster. I could turn the table faster. Take a Denny's. The lights high. Lights are high. Waiter walks fast. Go to a Morton's. Lights are low. Waiter walks slow. If that waiter walks faster in a Morton's, that steak isn't worth eighty dollars anymore. If the lights come down, it, it, it directly affects pace perceived value. So when we design concepts. Pace and table turns are a large part of design, not only traditional sequencing and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. yep. What is the beats per minute strategy to drive energy level? What is the pace of servers? What are our mechanical dynamics? What are our interactive dynamics? What are our personal dynamics? How we present ourselves, our pace, and every aspect to generate the appropriate higher energy or lower energy for higher prices. But make no mistake, the slower and lower, the higher the prices. The higher and faster, the lower the prices. So these are delicate adjustments to concepts that, yes, that drive perceived value hugely. And they're not isolated. They're not islands. They all have to come together and mesh. That beats per minute strategy has to connect to the uniform. That uniform has to connect to the environment, to the employee's energy level and connectivity. All of these things have to connect at such deep levels and this is a guy who's done almost a thousand concepts in my life saying Amazing. this beginning to end. These connectivity points, the common threads, as I call them, 
that connect all of these elements into something cohesive are what defines a restaurant and give you that feeling in your gut. It's intangible. But when these pieces come together, the reaction is powerful. So we're not in a restaurant business. We're not in the food business. We don't market. We create reactions. We achieve it through marketing. We don't serve people. We create reactions. We achieve it through service. I don't do promotions. I create reactions. I achieve it through promotions. I don't play music. I play reactions. I achieve it through music. That's the business we're in. And make no mistake. This is a great close, Roger. Ready? Make no mistake. He or she who creates the best reactions. Beautiful. Amen to that, John. You end every show with my work is done. You've offered so much knowledge and expertise and insights to our audience, and you continue to do amazing things for this industry. So thank you for being a part of hospitality and for being on the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Roger. You're terrific, buddy. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much, audience, for tuning in. Can't wait to see you next time and stay well, everyone. All I can say is thank you, John. I so enjoyed talking shop with you, and I learned so much about just leadership in this business and your approach to turnaround situations and how you've literally up-leveled this industry one operation at a time. It's exciting to watch past episodes of Bar Rescue. I'm excited to see the new season coming up, and you've got so much going on, and you have such extensive experience. I'm just thrilled to be able to offer this to my audience, so I cannot thank you enough for being such an amazing guest on the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Thank you also to our audience, as always, for tuning in. We hope you all stay well, and I can't wait to see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.